Well, as we end this uh, letter of Second Peter, I, I think it's just important to remember kind of what's happening here in this letter. And we've, we've circled back to this a few times. But here sits old gray-haired Peter, um, the fisherman turned apostle. And, and all you look back over his life, all he's walked through. But here he is, and in, in this immediate context, he's, he's seen many of his dear friends... People that he worshipped together in local churches and house churches and sang alongside and, and, and taught. And many of these dear friends he has seen tortured and killed by Nero and his regime because of their identification with Christ. And now he knows his own death is imminent. Uh, he knows it could be any time. He realizes that at any time, soldiers could bust through his door and arrest him and haul him off and to some kind of mock trial and he would be executed very soon. He knows that's a possibility. And he knows it's certain that he's going to die soon. He tells us that. But, but the whole course of his life has been directed by some of the last words that he heard from uh, the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus said to him in John 21, Simon, tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Now he has, at this point, and we get into Second Peter, he has for decades now, not, not at all perfectly, but faithfully cared for Christ's sheep. He's loved them and He's protected them and He's fed them and He's, he's led them. And, and so in this context, His heart is heavy for these believers in these churches because of what they're facing. This intense persecution from the outside. And then also there's, there's these deceitful workers, these false teachers, these scoffers from within, these religious phonies who crept into the church and, and came alongside the church and were threatening to do all kinds of damage to these young, struggling churches. So he, he has, this, there's this weightiness in his words here. So his, his last will and testament, it, it deals directly with those very difficult realities. Especially the, the threat of false teaching. That's really what he deals with in this letter. There are important truths that he does not want these believers to forget after he's gone. And we said, remember, that is one of the big words in this letter of Second Peter, and we see it over and over again. Look back with me real quick to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He says, I, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He knows he's going to die soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall, to remember these things. And again, in chapter 3, we saw this last week, in verses 1 and 2, I'm writing, again, two or three times, I'm writing so you'll remember. He wants them to remember. And so because of Peter's own imminent death, and because of the serious nature of the threat of these false teachers, there's this sense of urgency throughout this letter. And, and it stands really in contrast to 1 Peter, which was so warm and pastoral in tone in, this, in, the, in, a, in a very hope-filled way. He's writing to encourage suffering believers. Here, it's just a, it's a different tone. It's very intense, even blunt in 2 Peter. It's, it's loving, and, and what we see, love is the motivation for what he's writing here in this letter. And he says in this chapter alone, four times he addresses these, these readers as beloved. These are his very dear, well-loved friends. Uh, but, but this loving pastor, what is he doing? He's earnestly pleading with them. He's pleading with them to keep their footing in the gospel of grace. And he feels this burden for them as he knows he's going to be dying soon. And so this is very clear right away in the, very, in the opening words of this letter. We saw this. And so he says in chapter 1, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Why? And he goes on in a few verses later. He says, so that you'll keep from being tripped up. That you'll keep from 
being, from stumbling because of these false teachers. That you won't fall. And this, this plea is clear in his, his closing words as well. He doesn't want them to lose their stability, verse 7, 17. But what? To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He wants them to have their footing after He's gone. Stability. And He uses this word twice in here. Stability. It, it doesn't have to do with their, you know, their eternal standing before God. This is not their salvation. That's not His point. This is, there is no iffiness about that in this letter. You can't, you can't say there is. He, Peter is very clear that they have, they already have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's right at the first verse of the letter. So we say, that's, that's settled. What stability has to do with is their rootedness in, in, in the Gospel as believers. That, that they wouldn't be blown around by these false teachers and the false teachings. That they wouldn't be, as Paul says to the Corinthians, led astray from from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that was a threat that they faced. And so he's, he's, he's urging them for their stability to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so in these closing exhortations, another thing I just was thinking about a lot this week, you, you, you can't, again, this is the last letter that Peter writes, and I just think it comes very clear, especially in these last exhortations, you can't help but feel a note of personal testimony in these final words. It's as though Peter sees something of himself in these readers, in these believers that he's writing to, particularly the first, those first readers. He, he knows what it's like to stumble. He knows what it's like to lose his footing. Uh, a younger Peter had been full of zeal, but lacking stability and depth. Um, he, his confidence in Christ was rather shallow. His faith was... Was, his heart was fickle. And so it was only through the risen Christ's gracious dealings with, with Peter in John 21 we see that, that his stability with Jesus in Jesus really began to grow. And so I think Peter has his own life kind of, he's seeing these believers through the lens of his own life. And so we're just going to see in these last, these last exhortations here five key ingredients to to our spiritual stability. And what we're going to, you'll notice, maybe you can pick this up in, the, in your English translations. You don't need to know Greek to, to see this. There are these four commands, four imperatives in, in verse 14, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. And then we're going to see one doxology, and those will be our five ingredients. But we're not saying, like, here's, you know, five ingredients that you just need, you just need to do these things. No, they're all about Jesus. They're all in. Uh, Rooted in Jesus Christ. And so, we'll see that together. Alright, first ingredient uh, to our spiritual stability. One, be diligent in preparation for the return of Jesus. Be diligent in preparation for the return of Jesus. And so, the the grammatical and logical connection between verses 14 and, and what proceeds is very clear. So you see that, therefore, in verse 14, in light of what he just said, he's going to now make this kind of summary statement. Therefore, since you are waiting for these, now we're going to see, now. so what then? What do we do? But first of all, what are the these that they or we are waiting for? Uh, we'll look in the previous verse. But according to His promise, verse 13, but according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so, in this previous verse, he's talking about the return of Christ and the judgment of the ungodly and the salvation of the righteous, that final salvation and the new heavens and the new earth and righteousness dwelling. And so, in light of all of these certain future realities, we should think and live in a certain way. That's what he's saying. And, and, and therefore, in light of all these things, and so... Whenever one, one of the things you see in the New Testament in particular, whenever the subject of the Lord's return or when, when the, the last things, when we're talking about future events, whenever that comes up in the New Testament, almost without exception, there is this emphasis on how we are to live in light of that coming day. So we, we're going to be, our lives are going to be marked by that. And this is not, this is not an, an exception to that rule. Verse 14, again, 
Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, what? What then? Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. So, again, taking... To be, keep in mind the context. What we looked at last week, the, these scoffers who laugh at and they disregard the, the promise of Jesus' return and, 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 they, and therefore they live accordingly. What do they live for? They live for their own sinful, selfish desires and pursuing those passions with no thought of eternity. They push away as the promise of His coming. And, and so they, they just lived with, for themselves. Peter said, remember how he described them back in chapter 2, verse 13? They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. You notice the parallel here now within chapter 3, verse 14. But they were they're blots and blemishes. So these, these unbelieving false teachers and they, they, they who marginalize Jesus, who mock the promise of His return, they are, they are wicked. And, they, and yet they work to create this kind of uh, image of this phony image of righteousness. But it's all a ruse. It's, it's deception. And so they can get a seat at the table in the love feast in chapter 2, verse 13. And so, but these believers, so that's, that's, that's the false teachers. That's who he's contrasting, who, uh, contrasting these believers with and how they should wait expectantly for the Lord's return. But these believers who love Jesus and who are rooted in Him and have a faith because of the righteousness of their God and Savior Jesus Christ and who have been given everything in Christ for life and godliness. You and you who are hoping for His return. Therefore, you should be diligent to be found genuinely spotless and blameless and at peace when He returns. What is that, what is that saying? This isn't... He's not saying what you need to do is you need to be perfect so that when Jesus comes back, He's not ticked at you. He's not mad at you because of the way you're living. No. That's not what He's saying. God, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, God is not ever angry with you. He has zero wrath left for you. It was all poured out upon His Son Jesus Christ when He died in your place. He has nothing but love in His heart for you. Always and only love. So, so what, in reality, the reason we're full of hope when we speak and sing of the return of Christ, and we, we do that often, it's not because our, our behavior and our conduct and our character is so spotless and blameless. That's not what fills us with hope. But it's because we have been redeemed, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1.19, we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's our hope. And so in terms of our standing with God, we have the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, First Peter, or 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, we have that credited to us. We're clothed in it. But Peter's saying though, this is what he is saying. I'm not trying to minimize what he's saying. In, because of that reality, in light of the, the fact that Jesus will return, our God, our Savior, the Holy One, the consuming fire, the, 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 the One to whom all glory belongs, 2 Peter 3.18. In spite of that, we should be diligent to live in light of that coming day. To make every effort to, to live out our righteous standing before the Lord, anticipating His glorious return. This is what he's saying. Not, not in a fretful, legalistic, guilt-laden way, but in a hopeful, grace-dependent, gospel-centered, God-fearing way. I mean, First John, there, there's so many passages that speak in the same way in the New Testament, speaking to believers about preparing for the Lord's return. First John 2.28 And now, little children, abide in Him. Abide in Jesus you want to prepare for the Lord's return? Abide in Christ so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. So you say that. You see what He's saying. The reason we won't shrink in shame is because we're abiding in Jesus. There's not a single person that can say, you know what? I'm not going to shrink in shame for Jesus because I'm going to be so good. 
I mean, Jesus is going to be so impressed with my quiet times. He's going to be so impressed with all the things that I'm doing and all my service and all my disciplines and the fact that I get up at four in the morning and pray for six hours. And, and, and he's going to be so impressed. I, I, I don't want to be ashamed when he comes back. That's, you, you understand how holy Jesus is. There's not, a, there's not a single person in this world, no matter how morally outstanding they are, that, that could stand before the Lord in their own on their own and not be ashamed. <laughs> There's no hope of that. Our hope is that we have the righteousness of Christ and the confidence and the, the being unashamed is because we are, we are abiding in Jesus Christ. This is, this is the core of what he's saying. He goes on in 1 John 5.21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't trust in other things. Trust in Jesus. This is, this is, again, what Peter's doing. Back to Second Peter. He's, he's contrasting these false teachers who marginalized Jesus, who denied Jesus, who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, who didn't hope for His return. And he's saying, you, however, don't be blots and blemishes. You be spotless and, 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 and blameless before Him. You anticipate His return and be at peace. At peace. It's not, not, it's not about tranquility or calm outside of us and around us. That's not what he's saying. Like, you just... You know, have peaceful circumstances, and so, you know, just create this utopia in 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 this life. That's not his point. It's just this absence of inner turmoil and unrest in the midst of all kinds of awful circumstances. And I, I and I just say, brothers and sisters, that, that Jesus holds that out to you. And we have that objective reality of peace in that Romans uh, in, in that Romans five one sort of way. Therefore, we having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's an objective reality. I don't care how you feel. If you are in Christ, you have that peace with God. But he but he, he's calling us to be diligent to make that objective reality um, our subjective experience as we abide in Christ and find our rootedness in his, in, in Christ and in His grace. And so the, these, these false teachers are upsetting the, the, the stability, the confidence, the rest, the peace of, of these believers. But in light of Christ's return, He's saying we shouldn't be panicking. We, 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 we should be at peace, rooted in Christ. You have peace with God. Live like you do. And again, I, I look around and we're talking as elders, praying for many of you and some of the situations some of you are walking in just before the service. And I just know there's some there's just all kinds of turmoil in lives here. And 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 yet we can know the peace of Christ in the midst of that as we abide in Jesus. So that's the that's a first if we're going to have spiritual stability we we have to we have to be prepared for the coming of Jesus, be diligent to prepare. Second, be confident in the salvation of Jesus. Be confident in the salvation of Jesus. So, so the scoffers, the false teachers, they've been saying, hey, the Lord's delayed return means He's not coming back. It's not happening. Remember last week, verse 4 of chapter 3, where is the promise of His coming? This is how they're mocking His church and the believers. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But Peter, he, he, he said then, we saw this last week, we'll see it again now, he's saying, that any apparent procrastination uh, of the second coming, it's far from being any kind of inaction on God's part. It is actually a demonstration of His very active patience and mercy. He's, he's at work. It's an expression of His long-suffering. Last week we looked in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So his, his patience, as we'll see in verse 15, it gives more opportunity for salvation. And so Peter's response here, it's meant to, to encourage his readers, encourage us to be confident that Christ's delay is purposeful. It's for salvation. It's, it's nothing that should rattle us. It's something that should actually encourage us to say Christ hasn't returned yet. And so verse 15, he says, and count, or I don't know how other, I should have looked at other translations, but it could, it could mean something like reckon or regard or, or confidently consider this. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
Be confident in the salvation of Jesus. So, salvation there, I know we, we think of salvation, we can't help but think of it through kind of our Western individualistic culture. We think of our own individual salvation, and that is certainly part of this, it's included here, but we, we think my personal testimony. But that's not the fullness of this word. It's, it's, the, it's the full outworking of God's purpose of redemption. This is what the patience of the Lord is for salvation. It includes our personal experience of salvation, but, but it also just the worldwide uh, application of that. And so he, he counted his salvation. And then he appeals to this parallel teaching um, of his apostolic counterpart, Paul. And he, he reminds the readers, Paul also wrote to you about counting the patience of the Lord of salvation. And so look again in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you concerning, uh, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So we can safely assume that Peter probably has some of these passages in mind, like Romans 2.4. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's probably a passage Peter had in mind when he said Paul also wrote. 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And there could be others. But there's this, this great little window um, here in this passage into the world of the early church here. And it's interesting, we're, we're with the Crossroads Sunday School class, we're doing a survey of Bible doctrine, and we're on bibliology right now, just kind of how we got our scriptures, and, and this is a great passage just showing us the, 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 the biblical, the, 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 that even early on as the New Testament's being written, that some of these letters are being regarded as scripture, so it has all kinds of wonderful implications, but, 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 but one of the things you see here is there's this one unifying message that the apostles taught and preached. There's just this solidarity. They wrote about the same things. That's what the text says. What was Christ and Him crucified? They wrote the same stuff. They're not guys who just kind of randomly wrote down little thoughts and ideas and things that came to their head and these little tangent, you know, personal reflections about Christ and salvation. That's not it. These are, these are men whose words were borne along by the one Holy Spirit. And, and, and so that what they wrote was inspired by God Himself and therefore consistent and unified. So they say, Paul wrote about the same stuff. All, we're all writing the same message. Christ. Christ. And already, again, it's clear that, that Peter recognizes Paul's writings as inspired by God, as Scripture. Look at verse 16. He said, some, some, some distort Paul's writings as they do the other Scriptures. So he's, he's showing what Paul's writing in Scripture. It's, it's on the same category as the Old Testament Scriptures. Equally inspired by God, equally true, equally authoritative. But Peter also acknowledges, verse 16, there are some things in them in Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> there are some difficult passages, passages that Paul wrote to which I say, Peter, who are you to talk? <laughs> some of these passages in Second Peter have, have, uh, have been difficult to understand. But listen, it's not, he's not saying because there's some defect with the, the inspired text. That's not it. It's because there's a defect with us in our, in our limited ability as finite humans to understand truth clearly. So, so it takes, takes effort and time and patience. And so if Peter himself noticed difficult uh, passages in Paul's letters, I would say how much more should we approach the Scriptures with humility and patience in our study? It's clear. and, we, and we can, It's not like God's playing hide and seek in His Word and He doesn't really want us to understand. That's not, that's not it at all. But it does take effort. We've got to dig. We've got to scratch. We've got to, got to see how things fit together. And so, so, so that's, that's with, for believers, with the true believers, with the best intentions, men who, who regard these words as Scripture, inspired by God. That was Peter. He says, still there's things that are hard to understand. So that's one category. But then he goes on to describe these at the end of verse 16. There's this other category. 
the, 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 the same supposed unclear passages in the, in the hands of the wrong people have a disastrous effect. And he says that there are those who are ignorant and unstable, who twist Paul's writings to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. And so there are these ignorant and unstable people. These are the same people that we've been seeing throughout this letter. The scoffers, the false teachers, the lawless ones. Uh, he says here he's describing them as ignorant and unstable. Ignorant, it literally just means untaught. They're no, no, no education. They're not innocently so, though. It's not, it's not, well, they didn't, they just didn't have exposure to the truth. I mean, after all, these are hard things to understand. They, they didn't have teachers. We should, we should be pitying them. They're just, they're just ignorant. They, they, they didn't know any better. That's not it. No, they are, they are willfully ignorant. They had apostolic teaching. They were exposed to the, the ministry of the apostles. They had the truth. And, and as we saw last, last time in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, where they have all this exposure to the truth and, and they are around it and, and, and in and connected to the church and they're hearing the Gospel. They had teachers, but they, they were willfully ignorant. They rejected all of that. They rejected apostolic authority. And so in that way they're ignorant. And they're unstable. It just means someone who changes and wavers his or her views all the time. And so, not, not, it's not about you know, changing in the sense of over time as believers we're humbly aligning our own convictions with the Word of God as we learn more and grow and our understanding of the Scriptures. That's not what he's talking about. He's, this is just being all over the map doctrinally. Theologically fickle. Just kind of you know, chasing the winds. What, how, whatever's expedient, that's what I'm going to believe today. Um, and so these, these ignorant... And unstable, false teachers, they, they just make a mess of the Old Testament Scriptures and, this, and, the, and, and the growing New Testament writings. That the text says they twist the Scriptures or they distort them, they wrench them, stretch them. Um, the noun form of this word for twist, it's, it, was, it was used of that torture device that maybe you've heard of known as the rack, which they would... They would it's this cruel device, and they would they would put uh, a person would be fastened to this, and their and their whole bodies would be twisted and turned, and joints dislocated, and and just bodies tortured, grueling pain, trying to interrogate them and get information out of them, and it was just an awful. But this he, these false teachers, Paul's taking that kind of that word and saying this is what they do with the truth, with the scriptures. Scripture in hand, or maybe they didn't, they didn't have in hand like we do, and a bound, leather-bound copy, but they, 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 knew the, they knew the Bible. They had memorized much of the Bible. They, and, and, but Scripture in hand, they, they, would, they would wrench and, tr- and twist and stretch a text until it said what they wanted it to say. They treat the Scriptures like clay to be molded and shaped into whatever we however we want to use it, instead of seeing ourselves as being molded and shaped by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Ripping passages out of context, forcing clear passages to conform to their kind of cloudy theology, concealing biblical truth, exaggerating their own interpretations, using all kinds of trickery to deceive people and into thinking that their teachings are, quote, biblical. This is, how, this is how they use the Bible. And so his, his point in giving us all this background, and so let's get back to the main road here, his point in giving us that is to reinforce our confidence in Christ's return, this final salvation. He's calling us to count the Lord's patience as salvation. Our confidence should not be shaken by false teachers who distort the very Scriptures that make that hope Crystal clear. And this is what he's saying. So if we're going to have spiritual stability, we need, to, we need to be confident in the coming salvation of the Lord. Third, third ingredient, is to, to be in, on guard against those who deny Jesus. Be on guard against those who deny Jesus. Look at verse 17 with me. So again, again in a very warm and loving way, Peter is warning his beloved friends. So he's not telling them something new here. He's telling them something. He's he's reiterating something he's already told them time and time again. And so you see it there in verse 17. Knowing this beforehand, that's one 
one word in the Greek, and it's, the word is prognosko. And you might hear an English word that sounds similar, prognosis. That's where we get our English word, prognosis. So when a, when a medical prognosis is made, uh, a patient is then better able to prepare himself or herself for what's ahead. And if possible, to, to kind of help themselves, to, to get treatment, to better themselves, that kind of thing. So if a doctor says, you know, if you continue eating two family-sized bags of potato chips every day, um, you know, in a, in a couple years, that is, you're, you're going to have some major heart issues. Uh, and so the patient now knows beforehand and therefore can change his life in accord with the information that he now has. And that's what a prognosis does in this sense. And so this is what Peter's doing. Peter... Peter has told us that we can count on the ignorant and unstable false teachers to twist and distort the Scriptures. And so look again at the text, verse 17. So he says, You therefore, because, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing this is going to take place, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So Peter was in a very real sense, again, he's drawing on his own sad experience. It was because he didn't listen to Jesus' words. It was because he, he didn't obey Jesus' exhortation to, to watch and pray that he crumbled when the pressures came. And so here he's, he's urging his readers not to fall into that same trap. He says, take care, be on guard. It's a, it's a military word. It just, just to keep keeping watch on, at, on an outpost and you're on guard duty. Keeping your eyes peeled for approaching enemy combatants. So you're, you're just constantly scanning back and forth and keeping alert and watching and being on guard. That's, that's the idea. And, and he tells us if we fail to take care in this way, if we fail to be on guard, to keep watch, there will be a price to pay. Surprised today. First, he said, we, we, will, we could be carried away by the errors of false teachers, of lawless people. And that doesn't mean like we're, you know, in the middle of the night, we're sleeping and we're, you know, bound and gagged and dragged away and against our will that we can just be, you know, blindsided and carried away by false teachers. That's not it. It's, it's, it's that we can be deceived and we can be led astray of our own volition. We can be drawn away and carried away by the errors of false teachers. So we have to keep alert. Again, using that imagery of that military outpost. See, these deceivers, they, they sneak up through the dense fog of deception and, and, they, and they wear our uniforms and they carry our weapons so they so there's to be concealed and they speak our language. They sneak in. And Peter's saying to us, brothers and sisters, you, you can't... You can't plead ignorance. I told you this beforehand. I've warned you about who they are, what they teach. So be, a, be on guard. Be alert. Take care. And if you're not alert, you can, you can be carried away by the error of these, of these. This error about Christ. This error about His grace. So that's one danger of not being on guard. Second, we can lose our stability, he says. Lose our stability. Now remember in chapter 2, he, he, there's, this, there's this certain destruction that is, that is uh, ahead for these unbelieving false teachers. They, they're facing destruction. They, they are, they're, they're facing fire. We saw this in chapter 3. That's not what he's talking about here, that we'll lose our stability. It, 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 just, it means we can lose our footing. We can stumble. We can get tripped up. Remember the very beginning of this letter. We saw this in chapter 1, that those virtues that we must develop between faith and love, there were, there's that, that string of virtues that we're to, to add to our, to our lives, those godly habits that should, should mark us as being useful and fruitful believers in Christ. Back to chapter 1, verses 5-8. to eight. With, with that exhortation to diligence and pursuing those, those things, that it, there came this promise in verse 10 of chapter 1. If you practice these qualities, you will never stumble or fall. And so here in, in chapter 3, verse 17, Peter's acknowledging there is a real possibility, though, of stumbling and falling. 
of losing stability, of slipping backward, of, of being useless and unfruitful. It's a, it's a possibility for you. So we, we can't let our guard down for a moment. If, we, if, if, we're, if we're carried away by these, by these errors of these false teachers, we'll lose our stability. We've we got to keep our eyes on Christ, constantly remembering Him, His grace, His, His gospel, His return. The Christian life is about fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And, so it, and, we, and we must be on guard against any teaching and teacher who would draw us away from Christ and drawing our confidence away from Him, drawing our attention away from Him, drawing us and to see that our sufficiency is not found in Him alone, but it's Christ and. It's Jesus and. As Uncle Screwtape, if you were there back in chapter 1, would tempt us. Alright, quickly. Two more ingredients. And this is the, the big one here in verse 18. The fourth ingredient. Be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. This is where it's all been, been moving. And then we'll see this doxology at the very end. This is, this is the whole purpose of this letter. But Peter's closing exhortation here, it could hardly be more positive. I know there's been some, there's been some dark, heavy words, um, pointed words throughout this letter. But here, as he comes to the end, he comes full circle. He returns to that opening blessing in this letter back in, in chapter, verse 2. But here he says, verse 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow. Growth. That's a key, key theme in the letter of Second Peter. Growth, maturity, fruitfulness, stability in the, in the midst of a very hostile environment. But as we've seen already and, and are reminded again here, it's not growth beyond the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's not growth beyond Jesus. It's growth, growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. This is the whole title for this series, Growing Grace. But as we said at the beginning, I'll say it again, we, we, when we tend to think about spiritual growth or talk about spiritual growth, we often go right to and, and only linger on those things that we do. I mean, there are obviously things we do, but, but that's kind of what we limit our discussion to. We talk only about spiritual disciplines and only about programs and only about these books that you have to read, and only about these lifestyle changes, and only about these habits you have to form. But as we've seen in this letter, this grace growth, it doesn't begin with us. And, it, and, and what we do, great growth is rooted in remembering Christ and what He has done. So it's always rooted in that. We never go beyond that. We grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to grow. From, from those roots of remembering Christ, this, then comes this life of fruitful, active obedience to Christ. But, but that, we can't flip that around and we can't isolate the second part without saying, where do those roots, where do they go? They go into Christ, into the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And so he says, grow. This, this is that present active imperative, meaning just it's to be a habit of your life, continuous action, not some kind of one-off experience where I just want to, I want to, I want to get up to that level. This is just normal, lifelong Christianity, always to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. It's, it's common in the church. You, you hear this. There's this kind of this restless restlessness and this restless longing for some kind of spiritual panacea or something like that. That we, we, We're desperately looking for something that will kind of take us to the next level of Christianity. You know, it's like kids, you know, a five-year-old, man, they want to be, they want to be 15. That'll, that'll be it. And then you get a 15-year-old, man, I want to be 25. And, and they're just, they're, they're looking for that, boom, that jump up. And, and Christians, we, we can kind of have that same mentality. We, we, can, we, we, we think that if we just, if we just, if we could just have this, you just get there. That'll be it. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's not, he's not saying we're to pursue some kind of spiritual steroid that, that we can just get this instantaneous improvement in the Christian life. It, it's, it, that's actually a version of what the false teachers are promoting. But Peter's saying, no, our lives are to be, to be continuously, habitually growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
constantly pointed at Him, constantly remembering Him, constantly trusting in Him, constantly going back to Him, constantly growing up in Him, in His grace, in His knowledge. Being more deeply rooted and growing in the grace of Christ, growing in our understanding and our confidence in His unmerited favor. Growing in His knowledge. Remember what we said when we started this whole series in Second Peter anyway, that the growing grace, it's, it's not about needing more than we already have. It's about further discovering what we've already been given. Again, you don't need more than you already have. You need to further discover what you've already been given in Christ. And so we, we don't go looking for something in additional to Jesus, in additional to the Gospel. It's not Jesus and, again. We, we just keep growing in our knowledge of Jesus and in the grace of Jesus, discovering deeper what we already have in Him. And just uh, an illustration that's not sufficient, but I'm trying to give some perspective on that. Just think in, in the context of marriage. Those of you who are, mar- are married or or, or um, just thinking in, in that way, the, the union, that union is established on your wedding day. And so you are married. But then you don't think, alright, we're done. So we're, we're good now. And so now, but, but no, but that union is to be nurtured and it's to be deepened throughout our life together. Sixty years together. Six decades of, 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 of growing. A growing marriage is not about, okay, now we're married. Now I'm going to go find more outside of this union. And, and no, it's about discovering deeper what we have in that union. That's what a growing marriage is. That's what it's intended to be. And, 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 and so... So this is how it is with us. We, we have unbelievable riches in Christ. And for until He returns, we're to be giving ourselves to, to pursuing growth in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Constantly going to Him. And what does that look like in our lives? How do, how do, we, how do we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? Just, I'm gonna, just a couple things kind of taking in the whole of this letter. First thing, I just say, uh, how, what does this look like? We must stay closely connected to Christian community. We must stay closely connected to Christian community. We grow in grace and knowledge together. Peter's, again, said this along the way. He's not writing to individual Christians, writing to Christians as individuals, but he's writing to Christians in community. These are all plural exhortations. This is what we do together. And, and so the, the church, our gatherings, these are the means God has given us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we don't lose our stability. We're not led away. We're not carried away. Footing doesn't slip. These, the, the, these gatherings and the stuff that we do as a church, these aren't hindrances to your own private you know, life of, of growth with God. No, that's not the way we're supposed to see these things. These are the intended means of our growth. Growth happens as a group. Secondly, we, we must saturate our souls with the Scriptures together. We've seen this emphasis throughout this letter on the Scriptures. We, 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 now, we are privileged to have uh, so much access to the Scriptures, even individually. We, we all possess probably multiple copies of the Bibles. And if you have a smartphone, you have just about every English translation that there is. And uh, if you speak another language, you can probably get multiple translations in those. And so, so we are privileged. We, we can open and should open the Scriptures daily in our homes and with our families and, and, and alone and with each other. But these believers in these churches, they, they couldn't retreat the personal reading and study of the Scriptures. They, they gathered together to hear these letters read to them and explained to them and they explained them to one another and, and they taught one another and, and they had teachers and pastors and apostles in their case who, who taught. They, they sang the Scriptures to one another. They, they prayed uh, the Scriptures. They publicly read the Scriptures. Just hearing, the, hearing God's Word read to them. They, they rehearsed the Scriptures and the truths and the promises at the Lord's table and in baptism. These ordinances the Lord has given the church. And so together they're just soaking their souls in the Scriptures. And they're together. And this is to be the part of the rhythm of our church life as well. 
that, that we're always getting ourselves underneath the Word together. Always, as, as Paul says, letting the Word of Christ dwell richly in us, together, corporately. This is how we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Not to minimize, I'm assuming the, the personal, private stuff, and I know that's a big assumption, but I'm just saying, this is, this is first and primary, and then we have this privilege and blessing to do it on our own as well. Third, we must regularly and consciously lean on the grace of God in our lives. We must regularly and consciously lean on the grace of God in our lives. And so, our growth, it's just dependent upon Christ and His grace. Peter does not say, grow in obedient law-keeping. Grow in your resolve to be more disciplined in your spiritual habits. I mean, those are fine. He says, grow in grace. Sometimes when we, again, we think about spiritual growth, we immediately think, I, me, myself, it's what i got to do. i got to get better and improve myself for Jesus. And we probably won't say it like that, but maybe there's a little bit of that residue in, in the way we think, but that's not, the, that's not the picture of spiritual growth you see in Scripture. It comes from relying upon the grace of God. It's abiding in Christ, the vine. It's, it's, it's walking by His Spirit. It's dependence. It's, it's Titus 3. It's grace training us and changing us. Our attachment to Christ is what enables us to do anything apart from me. You can do nothing, Jesus says. Any fruit in our lives is ultimately a result of the Holy Spirit. I mean, so, so this, is, this is why the New Testament writers are so adamant about getting the gospel right. It's the grace of God. It's not only the source of our justification. It, it, it is the source of everything that follows. All growth. So, so Peter, he wants them, he wants us, he wants us to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and to be fruitful as we abide in Christ, as we rest in Him. In the, in the, in the midst of a very hostile environment. Last thing. Last ingredient, and then we're going to sing, is to be consumed with the glory of Jesus. And real quickly, this is, this is not an exhortation, this is a doxology, but there's this climactic explosion of praise and adoration at the end of this letter. Verse 18, To Him, to Christ, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so, this, what, a, what a powerful doxology, especially given the context. And consider what we've been looking at in Second Peter, these, these false teachers who marginalized Jesus, who denied Jesus, who, who weren't looking for the return of Jesus, thought He was a, just a small footnote on the pages of history. Perhaps, Peter says, no! To Christ alone be glory now and forever. Now, again, you, I can't help but think of Peter's own life. Is he, is he, is he, is he's writing these words of doxology or are there tears that are mingling with ink? Here's Peter who, who throughout, was with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, who was there, saw everything, he, he seemed fully committed to Jesus, and then he showed he was really committed to himself multiple times and stumbled, he stumbled, he fell, but he was restored to this place of stability by the grace of Jesus. He, 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 went, he went from being this headstrong Galilean fisherman to this humble apostle. And it's grace. And so as he's, as in this letter, he's, he's been, he's been um, you know, just seeing the dimensions of this great salvation that is ours. Oh, he, he gets to the end and, and he can't help but offer praise to Jesus. All praise, all glory belongs to Him. It's to Him alone. Not just, not just the now, not in the present age, but to the day of eternity. That day that will usher in the everlasting day. That everlasting age. And so as we, as we come to the end, just, just three words. I know I've given you five this, three, whatever. I know, this is what preachers do. But I, I just, these three words just kind of came to the surface as I was reading through the whole letter this week and trying to put my arms around and where we've been. And one, remember. They all begin with R. Also a preacher thing to do. Remember. Remember. This is looking back, past. Remember Jesus. Remember the gospel. Don't, go, don't grow up beyond it. 
Don't move past it. This is where we get into dangerous waters, where we make it very easy to be led astray, where we can be carried away by errors of lawless people. Keep your life tethered to remembrance of Christ, what we have obtained by faith, what, that we have been given all that pertains to life and godliness in Christ, that we have grace in Christ. So much of our Christian lives is about remembering. So much of our gatherings is about that. So that's first, remember. Second, resist. Resist. Now we're talking present. Resist. There are, there, Peter says there's false teachers. You can expect them. You're living in the last days. And so we need to be aware. We need to be on guard. We need to be discerning. Resisting the constant pool of teachings that are all around us and teachers who would try to move us away from finding our sufficiency in Christ and move us away from, from trust in Christ and move us away from, uh, from growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and move us in, moving us away from hope and the return of Christ and moving us away from obedience to Christ. So we've got we to gotta resist. And again, much of our resistance... Goes back to the first, it's remembering. Third though, reach. Reach. Now we're thinking future, and you see this strain throughout this book. Look forward to Christ's return. Live in light of it. I mean, embrace the truth that He is coming, and it could come at any time, and that just makes all the difference for us. It it it, it aligns our priorities, our, our purpose, our, our pursuits, it aligns those with 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 what Christ would want, it, it will change our attitudes, change our, our, how we talk, change how we think, change how we act. It, it will transform our outlook. It will change our worldview. It will change how we deal with trials in life. So expect His return. Uh, live on tiptoe, just anticipating Christ's coming. Well, brothers and sisters, I, I end with uh, the prayer that Peter prayed for this church in the opening and then this doxology at the end. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, to You, Jesus, be be glory forever. I pray that You would help us not just by ones and twos as, as part of this church, but together as a church, members of this body, we will, we will continue to grow up into Jesus Christ, growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. And any, any growth, any fruitfulness, any stability, any... any endurance that we have, Lord, it will all be to the glory of Your Son, both now and to eternity, we pray. Amen.